Our theme, of course, for the year is all in, all in. And uh, for the last few weeks, we've been focusing on hold nothing back. We had a wonderful message from Sam last week. And uh, the encouragement is that as we approach God and as we continue with our relationship with him, that we don't hold anything back, that uh, we just give it all. And uh, the reality is, though, it's hard to do that. And we won't always get it right. There are times where uh, we hang on to things or we try and hide things from God and uh, we don't hold nothing back to him. We, we keep things to ourselves. kind of reminds me of a, a school story. And um, I had a class of, uh, of young students many, many years ago. And they were eight, nine years old. And uh, as happens in a classroom in the morning, um, teacher may ask to see homework. And so I, I asked the students to put their homework on their desk in front. And we were just going to talk about it and see what they learned and what they were still unsure of. And uh, when I asked the class to do that, I could see one boy sort of shuffle awkwardly in his chair and hide something underneath his desk. And I thought, oh, there's a bit of a story here. So uh, as we started to talk about the homework, um, and I just would go around the class and just have a look and see what they'd all done, got to this boy and uh, there's nothing on his table. And uh, very, very creatively he says, oh, I did it, but I left it at home. I mean, that is just so, so believable. Uh, I said, oh, so you've done it? Yeah, I've done it, I've done it, um, but I left it at home. I said, okay. Um, I wonder if, if there was any chance that perhaps the book you did it in got caught up with other books and as you're unpacking things and putting them in your desk this morning, maybe that book got there by mistake and you didn't realise it's there. Oh, no, no, I left it at home. Okay. Um, why don't you take your books out from underneath your desk anyway? We'll just check. Uh, the maths book, the English book, the science book. No, Mr Evans, it's not there, not there. Okay. Is, isn't that another book under your desk? Oh, oh, that one? That one? Yeah, that's the book that your homework would be in. Oh, oh I didn't realise it was there. Well, turn to your homework, we'll have a look and just see how you went with it. Oh, now I remember. Now I remember. I wrote it on a piece of paper and I was going to stick it into the book, the piece of papers at home. Oh, so you've done it? Yeah. And it's on a piece of paper at home. Yeah. Do you remember what you actually did, what you wrote for your homework? Oh, yeah, I remember. I said, great. Well, when you're coming at lunchtime, you can rewrite it and uh, you'll remember what it was. <laughs> but that's sometimes how it is. We just get things wrong with God. And uh, rather than holding nothing back, we try and hang on to things or hide things. Paul struggled with that as well. In uh, Romans 7, 18 and 19, Paul writes... And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. And I think that's sometimes the conflict that we have. Our desire is to hold nothing back from God, to give all that we have to God, but we don't always get it right. But Paul writes on to say, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And I love that he doesn't just say, yes, there's this, this wrestle, this time we get it right, this time we don't get it right and so forth. He just doesn't leave us there without hope. But he says there is an answer. 
And that is in Jesus through the love and forgiveness of Jesus we have access to God. Paul writes again in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And can you imagine that that image of running that race with our eyes fixed on Jesus and from time to time something might trip us up or get caught around us and entangle us. We have to throw that off and step out of it and keep running the race and keep focusing on Jesus, the one who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And one day our faith will be perfect. One day we'll perfectly hold nothing back from God. We work towards that. We might trip, we might stumble, we might do what we don't want to do and not do what we should do, but we know that Jesus is there and we keep our eyes on him. When we're thinking about holding nothing back, I think that's the key. Keep our eyes on Jesus. But there are things that hinder us along the way. And our Bible passage this morning will uh, help us to explore some of that. So the main passage is from Luke chapter 15. If you're following through in your own Bible or devices, then Luke chapter 15 verse 11. If not, it will be on the screen. And let's read this and then explore some of the things that can hinder us from being totally open to God. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. I'll just digress a little bit. This is what the point was. Um, so Luke chapter 15, at the start of the chapter, Jesus is being given a difficult time by the religious leaders because he hangs around with notorious tax collectors and sinners. And uh, they're questioning Jesus, why would you do that? And Jesus then tells three stories to illustrate why he hangs out with these people. He tells the story of a lost sheep, the story of a lost coin, and this story. And it's just showing that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So that's the context of all of this. So to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later... The younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. 
filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. He asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And Jesus told that story along with the other stories just to emphasise that he is there to seek and save the lost. But this also emphasises to the Jewish leaders God's heart for those who were seen to be sinners. Of course, we're all sinners. But the Jews believe that God could only love the righteous. God's love is for us all. The title of that passage varies in different translations of the Bible. In some translations, it's called the prodigal son. The prodigal is a word that means spending money or using resources freely but recklessly, being wastefully extravagant, living a wasteful life. That's what the word prodigal means. In another version of the Bible, it's not called the prodigal son, but rather the lost son. And yet another version, it's called the two brothers and yet another it's simply called the loving father and I think that's the title that best fits because the story is to emphasize the love and forgiveness and acceptance of God and of course the father in the story is symbolic of God but let's have a look at both of the sons so in regards to our theme all in hold nothing back Let's see uh, what challenges both the sons had. So at the start of the story, the prodigal son, his view of the father is totally opposite from hold nothing back. His uh, perspective on life and on his father and on his father's wealth is to get as much as I can. It's not about holding nothing back and giving all I can. It's taking all that I can with the reason to support his chosen lifestyle. So he sees the father as as like a a bank, uh, a supply of resources that will 
facilitate the kind of life that I want to hold. In verse 12 of the passage, the son asks the father for his share of the inheritance. It was as though the father was dead to him, insulting. And I don't think there could be a greater insult. Dads, just imagine today if it wasn't that Spider-Man colouring in book that you got or that wonderful rap from the stage, or whatever it might be. But can you just imagine what it would be like if your child said to you, yeah, look, I know it's Father's Day, but um, I'm going to leave home. Um, Perhaps that was a good gift, I don't know. (laughs) But I want money. I know that when you die, I'll get part of the inheritance. And uh, I'd like that now. And um, see you later. Just imagine how gutted you'd feel if that happened, not just Father's Day but any day, that the child would see you as, well, dead already and uh, your sole purpose is just to pass on the wealth so I can live the life that I want. The hindrance that that son had was that he didn't think he had anything of value to the father, that it was a one-way relationship. The father has incredible value to me and I want it right now to live my life but there's nothing about me that could possibly be of value to the father. And we need to take that on board. If we're going to hold nothing back from God, we have to understand that we have immense value to God. The lives that he has given us are incredibly worthwhile to him and he wants us to give that to him and hold nothing back. Verse 13 of the story tells us that the son wasted all the money <coughs> excuse me, in a distant land. Now, the Jews, of course, were very precious about their nationality. Anyone who wasn't a Jew was called a Gentile. And the implication here is that this son in a distant land was living amongst non-Jews, people that they would be, would, would be referred to as Gentiles. And he's lost his money, he's lost his inheritance, he's given that away to Gentiles. That would be particularly disgraceful. To lose what your family had is bad enough, but to lose it and it becomes in the hands of the Gentiles is even worse. And it was grounds for excommunication. So because of his actions, that son could have been just cast off from the family not belong to the society anymore. It's too disgraceful to think what you have done. You've taken what your father and perhaps grandfather and great-grandfather have earned, they've built up, have established, and you've lost it, but lost it to people from another race. So it was quite a significant thing that he was in this distant land. And I guess we can also think of the distant land as something that would be away from the eyes of his father. So I can take the wealth, I can take what I can get my hands on, I can live the life that I want, and I'm doing that away from your eyes. You won't see what, what's happening. There's no accountability. There's no anyone tapping on the shoulder and asking, well, look, really, is they, are these the right kind of things to do? He was away from where he belongs in that accountability. And there are times I think we can think that way of God as well, that I can make the choices that I want to. I can hang on to things that I should be handing over to God, but I'm doing it where there's no accountability, where no one can really see. And we know that God is all present. We know that that accountability has to come from within us. 
So the story is a rather extreme example of someone grabbing what they can and living the life that they want to to live. But how about us? I wonder to some lesser degree, do we view God as a person from whom we get resources in order to live our chosen lifestyle? That God's job is to provide for us, to make our life easy, to help us feel good about ourselves. And we only approach God when we need something more from him. Our hands might be open to God, but to grab and to take rather than to offer. And I can see why people might think this. In Philippians 4, the Bible says, This same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Jesus Christ. So isn't it the same kind of thing? Isn't the Bible saying he, God will supply your needs? He has glorious riches and they've been given through Jesus. Doesn't that mean we can grab what we want from God? I think the difference is our motivation and the purpose that we come to God for these things. If it's to facilitate our own lifestyle to head in our own direction, to make things easier or better for us, for our own benefit, I'm not sure that that's what God's supply of riches is all about. If it's for us to follow his will, to equip us, to let us pursue the purpose he's called for us, then I think that supply is unlimited. The difference is the motivation. The prodigal son, his primary purpose, his motivation was to live how he chose to live. But do we approach God only when we're in need? If things are ticking along well, he doesn't really get a second thought. Just have a think about that. In your prayers, are you more motivated to pray when you need something? That's not a bad thing. But do you pray when that need is not there? Do you take time in prayer and just saying, God, I thank you for who you are. Thank you for the life you've given me. Thank you for your love, for your forgiveness. Are our prayers ever just prayers of thanks? Or is there always something tacked on, by the way, could I this? I need this. Would you mind? Please can you? And God does want us to bring our needs to him. Don't get me wrong. But it's about approaching God from a heart of thanksgiving and relationship rather than a heart of need. So as the story unfolds, all the prodigal son had ran out. There was no more. The main problem he had was that he was hungry. And in desperation, he took a job feeding the pigs. Pigs were considered by Jews to be unclean. And here he is with these pigs, feeding them, caring for them. That would be um, very degrading for a Jew to do that. But it was his hunger that brought him to his senses. And I think there are times we need to come to a point in our life where all that we had is stripped away and we're just left with this hunger, with this desire that only God can fulfill and that's where the prodigal son was. He had a rehearsed speech. 
I have sinned against heaven. He'd realised that what he'd done was against God's laws um, and the Jewish customs. I've sinned against you, my father. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Take me on as a hired servant. I can't argue with that, that uh, speech that he'd rehearsed. I think he's nailed it. <laughs> That's the kind of thing I think I'd be wanting to say if I was in that situation as well. That recognise that we'd sinned, we've hurt our father, we're not worthy to be called son anymore, and just, I'll be a servant. As long as I can be under your household again, I'll be a servant. And finally there, he was in a place where he held nothing back. Held nothing back. He had nothing to hold back apart from his life. And he knew that his life would be over unless he could once more get under the covering of his father's house. Everything he had was stripped away. And he was going to humbly beg for mercy from his father. I wonder if you can relate to that at all. Whether there's a time in your life you felt things have been stripped away, things that have been so important to you, things that you've worked hard for, that you've sown into time and effort and emotion, and suddenly they're gone. And I wonder at those times, do you turn to God humbly to come to him and say, God, all I need at this time is to be once more in your house. All these things I've been focusing on and thinking through and spending time with, they're gone. God, I just need to be in your house once again. I like that the prodigal son didn't blame his father for his situation. He didn't say, Dad, if you had said no... I wouldn't be in this situation. Did you have no wisdom? Did you have to give me that money? This is all your fault. I like that he didn't do that. He owned the problem. But I think we're inclined at times to blame God. God, this is a difficult situation. Why have you created this situation? Why have you been so slow to respond to my request? God, why have you this? Why have you that? And at times we just need to take a step back and say, God, what is it that's happening in here? What is it that you want to strip away from me so that I can be in your house again? But you notice too that though the prodigal son had lost everything, had brought shame to himself, to his father, and was prepared to crawl back on hands and knees and be a servant... In his father's eyes, the son never lost his worth and right to be a son. There was nothing he did that stopped that father from loving him. The Bible says in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And if we come back to God with the right heart, he's not there to condemn us. There's nothing we can do to stop that love. As Pam said this morning, nothing can separate us from that love of God. When he came back to the Father, he held nothing back. He just opened up his life. He got so much more than he expected or that he deserved. Let's take a few moments and look at the other son, the older one. Now, in terms of our theme, hold nothing back, he appeared to hold nothing back. We know that he worked hard. We know that he did everything that the father asked. 
In fact, when the prodigal son returned, he was out in the field working. Understandably, he's angry with the father. How could you? How could you bring him back into the house? He's wasted everything you gave him. And yet you're throwing a party. You're not just sneaking him in the servants' quarters. You're throwing a big party for him. The eldest son was loyal and hardworking. He said, all these years I have slaved for you. And there's the problem. All these years I have slaved for you. And while it appeared that the oldest son was holding nothing back, he was. Do you know what it was? It wasn't his hard work. It wasn't his loyalty. It wasn't his muscle, his effort. None of those things. What he was holding back was his heart. And that's expressed when he says, I have slaved for you. I've not worked alongside you. I've not been in the family business. We've not been co-workers. I've been your slave. And I've given you everything I have, but I have not given you my heart. And he missed the very essence of who the father is. There's a loving father who said to this older son, everything I have is yours. You could have had a feast with your friends whenever you want. There's all these good things around, but you've got this attitude of slaving away, of having to work, and you've missed the heart of who I am. God doesn't want slaves. He wants sons and daughters. God's desire for us is that we're in a loving relationship with him, and the older son wasn't. He was in a working relationship with him. Our response to the loving relationship is to serve God. And that may mean working hard. That may mean being in the fields. That may mean getting hot and sweaty. But we do that out of a loving relationship. God, I love you. I grow closer to you. I want to know you. You want to know me. And because of all of that, what is it that you want me to do? It doesn't come the other way around. And if we think that we can work hard for God and do things for God, and therefore he will love us more, or bring us into a closer relationship, we've got it back to front. It's not the hard work that creates the relationship. So while the prodigal son was lost, I believe the son at home was lost as well. He was lost in his need to work to earn approval. Lost in his belief that because he worked hard, somehow the father owed him something more. He was lost in that he didn't take time to appreciate the joy of the relationship. The younger son, the prodigal son, pursued a self-centred life. The older son, I think, also pursued a self-centred life. I will work, I will conform, and therefore I will earn favour. So if the prodigal son learned there was nothing he could do to stop the father from loving him, the older son needed to learn There was nothing he could do to make the father love him. Both needed a revelation of God's grace that says God's love is there through the gift of Jesus Christ for all of us, regardless. Whether we take the money and run, whether we work hard, whatever it might be, the grace of God is what we need. And I think the prodigal son experienced that. The older son, he was still wrestling with it.
Of course, the third character in the story is the father. Let's have a quick look at him. And really, the story is about the father. It's in the context of the lost being found. Someone is searching for that which is lost. Verse 20 tells us that the the father saw him coming, longing for his son's return. Have you ever been expecting visitors and you keep the front curtains open just a little bit so you can see when they arrive? And it could be that you're doing preparations, but you keep checking out that window to see if they're here yet. Something more to do, finish in the kitchen, just check to see if they're here. And I think that's how the father's life would have been in that time the son was away. He wouldn't have been going about his business with those curtains in the front room closed. He would have been there ready, hoping and longing for his son to return. So that when he saw him, the door was flung open and he ran down to meet him. And the Bible tells us that he ran to meet him. Running would have been an undignified thing to do. And I think Jesus says in this story that the father ran to meet him to prove that his joy was so overwhelming that dignity didn't matter. The son started to give the rehearsed speech. But did you notice he didn't get to finish it? He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. The rehearsed speech then went on to say, take me in as a hired servant. And in the actual speech he gave to the father, the father cut him off. In one version of the Bible says, the father interrupted him. He didn't get to say, I'll just be a servant. That wasn't expressed at all. I think that tells us that it's not so much the words we say when we come to God, but it's the attitude of the heart. And that father knew the son's attitude. And although the son didn't get to say all that he wanted to say, the father said, it doesn't matter. Your heart tells me that you've turned around. And there is no way I'm going to let you even ask to be a servant. God knows our heart. And the father's response was to put the finest robe on this son. (coughs) No doubt that robe would have been his own robe. He's the father of the household. He has all these servants. He would have had this nice fine robe. And that robe would show that this son belongs in the household. That this is a son. It's not a slave anymore. That robe could have been identified at a distance. People would say, wow, there's the father. There's the the owner of the household. Oh, hang on. It's his son. Oh, Oh, he's back. Goodness me. The robe told people what it was all about. The father then said, put a ring on his finger. Now that ring symbolised that he had the authority of the father. That meant he could do the business of the father. Think about that. This guy has taken half of the wealth of what the father had. He's wasted it. And now the father's saying, here's a ring. You have my authority to conduct my business. That's not coming back as a slave. That's incredible trust that the Father gives him. And God gives us that same authority through the Holy Spirit. We are the ones who wear that ring. We are the ones who do the business of God. He trusts us with that. We're not his slaves. We're his sons and daughters entrusted to continue to work. There were shoes put on his feet. The slaves went around barefoot, but not his loved son. By adding those elements to the story, Jesus points out that not only does God accept the lost, but elevates them to positions of honour and responsibility and trust to carry out his business. We may come to God on our knees begging for forgiveness, but God lifts us up to be valued family members.
I'll get the band to come back up. Get ready to finish, please. All in. Hold nothing back. I don't just talk to fathers, but to mothers or to people who have worked with children in Sunday school or youth group or schools or whatever it might be. Have you ever had a child hiding something in their hand they shouldn't have? And it might be a texture that seems to match the same colour as the scribble that's just appeared on the lounge room wall. Or maybe it's, it's a box of matches that sort of uh, explains why you can smell smoke inside the house. Or maybe it's a foil wrapper that can explain why there's chocolate on the child's face and where that missing Easter egg might be. And we have to prize that hand open. What's in your hand? Show me. I wonder whether there's something you're holding in your hand that is a hindrance to you running that race, that you're not willing to give to God. Maybe it's that you've missed the heart of God and you're hanging on to something that prevents you from understanding who God really is. Maybe it's, it's pride. Maybe in your hand it's closed tight around hurt that you just can't let go of. Holding nothing back? No, you're going to hang on to that God. You can't have that hurt. Perhaps it's disappointment. Maybe it's uncertainty or grief. That there's something that you're holding that you won't open up your hand and give it to God. In Psalm 37, verse 5 of the message, message translation, it says, Open up before God. Keep nothing back. He'll do whatever needs to be done. Just as the father did in the story. He organised the celebration. He organised the robe and the ring and the shoes. He spoke to the son who was upset. God will do all that. Our task is to open up to God and hold nothing back. Each of the stories in Luke 15 end with a celebration. It's not just a numbers game for God. And when we come to him with sincere hearts and open up and hold nothing back, there is cause for celebration. I love how this particular story ends. Verse 32 talks about we had to celebrate this son of yours, this brother of yours was dead but is lost. Uh, sorry, was come back to life, was lost but now he's found. And that's where the story ends. It doesn't say what happened next. And I can almost imagine that the father and the older son who's angry are sitting on the front steps of the house. And in the background, there's the noise and the celebration and there's music and there's smells of roast beef floating through the windows. And the father and the son are talking. And the father's saying, your brother is back. You have all that, that I have. There's no need for you to be upset. And that's where the story ends. Does, does the father stand and hold out his hand to the son to take that hand and say, look, come on inside. Come on, you come and join. You're part of all of this. Come and celebrate. Or does the father say, just take a few minutes. I'm going to head back inside. Hope to see you soon. The door is open. 
the door is open. But it's up to this older brother to respond. And when God is calling us, when he's saying, just open up what's in your hand. Give it to me. Step into relationship with me. He just waits for us to respond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God. A Father who loves us unconditionally. And Father, I pray that we can hold nothing back in our lives to you. Father, at times there's things we grip tightly that are not necessary. God, help us to open our hands to you, to hold nothing back, to give you our hurt, our anger, our hopes and our dreams. And God, we know that you can resource us for everything we need, but we don't take what we don't need. And we only take what will further your purpose. I wonder this morning if, just symbolically, while you're sitting there with your eyes closed and your head's bowed, whether you want to just open up your palm of your hand to God and say, God, here it is. I don't want to hang on to this any longer. And God, my hand stays open and empty to receive what you have for me because you're a loving God. Thank you, God, that we are cherished family members. And I pray there's nothing in our hands that will prevent us from being your son or your daughter. Amen.